Red Hills Church Podcast. We are so glad that you are joining with us today. My name is Kate Swanson. I'm the communications director around here, and I just want to welcome you in. We are going to jump into our message in a moment, but here are a few things that are happening at Red Hills Church this week. So on Saturday night at five o'clock, we have got our family swim night. We would love for you to join us out at the Carlton outdoor pool, bring a picnic, bring your friends, bring your family, come join together. You can register over on our website at our kids page and just let us know that you're coming. We would love to see you on Saturday night and hang out with you there. Also, if you would like to get connected, we'd love to know if you're watching online or listening to our podcast, you can fill out our connect card over on our website. It just has three pieces of information. We'd love to get to know you a little bit or maybe pray about something that's going on in your life. We love to pray over prayer requests. Also, you can worship through generosity today by giving your tithes and offerings. If you're part of our church family over on our website, click the give button and you can give digitally there. Well, we are going to jump into the third message of our series, Identity, Belonging, and Purpose, and we are going to welcome Pastor Lane right now. So identity, belonging, purpose. We talk about how all of these different aspects of our existence kind of feed into one another. They kind of overlap with each other. It's not a perfect science, but each one of these different aspects of our of our existence comes with a different question. So the first week we kind of wrestled with identity, which is like, who are we? We explored this loving truth that our identity is rooted in the idea that we are the beloved of God, that beloved is what is at the center of our being. And then the next week we talked about belonging, the question being, where do we belong and who's invited? And we looked at the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, and we talked about how God, the, the gospel reaches not just out to everyone, but to anyone. And today, we're closing in with this question. Purpose. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Now, normally, I would love to take a singular, sing, singular passage and unpack it to discover the truth that it holds for us. But in this case, it's just it's too tall in order. Because the question of why we are here, what our purpose is, is really the entire body of Scripture. It is the story of creation itself, where we come from, who we are, and where we're going. So there's actually many passages that we're going to look at this morning. There's a lot of different directions we could take this question in. But when we say we, our purpose, know that we are talking about capital C Church. Yes, Red Hills, but not just us. The entire people of God, why are we here? What is our purpose? To hone the question in a little bit, what is our mission? What is our mission? Now, if you've grown up in the church like me, or even if you've been an observer of the, of the church from the outside, perhaps it's been communicated that the mission of the church is to rescue souls from the fate of hell after we die, right? The house is on fire, so we need to get everybody out as soon as we can, right? Maybe the imagery that you associate with Christianity looks like this. Maybe you have the image of the guy standing on the street corner, right, angrily yelling at people, saying things like, repent for the end is near, turn or burn, hoping that someone walking by will feel guilty enough to say the sinner's prayer, right? Now, obviously, these are caricatures of, of what most churches, that I, at least that I've been a part of, actually look like, right? Most Christians that I meet are not this militant or two-dimensional in their thinking. In fact, most Christians I meet are far more gracious, far more nuanced and kind-hearted than what these images may suggest, but if you're like me, although you would probably never go stand on a street corner with a sign in a, in a 
foghorn? What am I trying to say? Megahorn. What is it? Megaphone. Megaphone thank you. <laughs> With one of those. <laughs> and yell at people. Uh, there is perhaps a bit of this rather two-dimensional thinking that's kind of infiltrated the way that we think about God and the gospel. There tends to be this way of thinking that has kind of been in the diet of Western Christianity, that the gospel is primarily about saving people from hell when they die. And that the way to get out of the destiny of eternal damnation is to sign on the dotted line and say the sinner's prayer, right? And once we do that, we've been saved from hell. Now, perhaps there is some... (laughs) Hallelujah! Yes, perhaps there is some semblance of truth to this approach. But it's definitely not the whole story, right? It's definitely not the whole truth. There are some important things missing if the entire gospel is just, we don't go to hell. There's some important things missing. Because if we look at the scriptures and the story that they tell, I think that we find that there is something far more compelling than that story. I learned how to do this really cool experiment from an author named Joshua Ryan Butler. You can all do this for yourself later. If you go on BibleGateway.com, there's a feature where you can type in a word to the search bar, and it will show you how many times that word appears in the body of Scripture. And if you type two words together, it'll show you how many times those two words appear together in the Scriptures. Now, the translation that you use will impact this a little bit, but for the most part, the trend is the same. If you go to that search bar and you type in the word heaven, the word heaven appears 622 times in the Scriptures. 622 times. The word hell, 13. The word heaven and hell together. Guess how many times it's mentioned in Scripture? Heaven and hell together in the same phrase. Zero. Heaven and earth, how many times? 195. Heaven and earth. Now, a word study isn't necessarily definitive, but it's interesting that many of us grew up with this notion that Christianity was about avoiding hell and getting to heaven after we die. But the scriptures don't appear to emphasize this as the main idea. What the scriptures appear to emphasize is actually the story of heaven and earth. If we look at the mode of worship right, that Yahweh established uh, with the Israelites, we see the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, right? This is where the Israelites would worship, where the presence of God would dwell. The tabernacle was designed, as it's described in Exodus, as this beautiful, beautiful thing filled with with sculptures of heavenly beings and fruit trees, which all are supposed to point us back to the imagery of the Garden of Eden, where the heavenly realm, God's space, and the earthly realm, our space, were one and the same. The tabernacle was designed to hearken us back to the way things were meant to be, heaven and earth united as one creation. God and human beings together in perfect unity. It was when human beings introduced sin into the system that it corrupted the dynamic of heaven and earthly unity. Because God's creation flowed out of his perfection, his holiness, his goodness. And sin is the anti-creation that is dismantling the good that God establishes, reordering life-giving creation into death-bringing anti-creation. So we are dealing with this this human struggle of life-giving creation and death-bringing anti-creation. Life-giving creation was perfect. 
It was loving union between heaven and earth. So when we look at that, that the prayer that Jesus taught his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, it acknowledges the holiness of God, right? The goodness of God. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy. And then it petitions that the heavens and the earth be reunited. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer is that God's goodness in the form of this heavenly realm would be reunited with the earth. If we look at the language in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, it says the word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This phrase, made his dwelling, is the Greek term skenao. Say that, skenao. This means to fix one's tabernacle or to pitch one's tent. So the best way to read this verse would actually be to say the word, Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus describes himself as the temple that will be destroyed and he will rebuild it in three days, right? He is the embodiment of God's presence coming to the earth, tabernacling among us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits of the new life that awaits us. The inauguration of the kingdom that is here in part today but will one day be here in whole. Not as a disembodied cloudland, but as an embodied physical and heavenly realm. Our future is heaven and earth reunited, spiritual and physical redeemed. If we look at the prophet Isaiah, if we look at the book of Revelation, right, we see this, this hope of a kingdom that is depicted as this glorious wedding, a reunification of heaven and earth, of God and his people. Revelation 21, this is, my, this is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place, Greek word skene, which means tent, is now among the people. And he will dwell, skenao, fix his tabernacle with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Dude, I don't know how to read that without getting all excited, right? It's just the most epic passage. So if heaven and earth is the story of creation, then hell is the agent of anti-creation. Hell is the power of all things evil. When Jesus uses the word hell, he actually uses the word Gehenna, which was a real physical place outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Here is where they'd send refuse to be burned and where idolaters would go to worship, sometimes through human sacrifice. So Gehenna reeked of actual burning garbage and the corruption of human violence. And these things were not allowed inside the walls of the holy city. Hell is the embodiment of evil that cannot be allowed inside the walls of God's good creation, which is characterized by the breath of life. Hell, death, is an insult to the goodness of God. So hell must exist to keep it out. Josh Butler wrote this about hell. Hell is not a place that God creates to torture people, 
but a power that God contains to protect the overflowing life of his new creation. Hear what I'm saying, and don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I'm saying. We have a choice. We have a choice in whether we run to the arms of the Father, the giver of life, and choose to be defined by him, or if we choose to be defined by evil. One path leads to life, and the other path leads to death. And so, yes, hell is a serious matter. But the story of avoiding hell is on the periphery of the story of the Scriptures, on the periphery of the story that God is interested in doing, enacting goodness in the world, bringing heaven to earth. Here's what I mean by this. The illustration I like to use is kind of like a loving parent and their children. Okay? None of us are perfect parents, but hopefully most of us are allowed the mercy of knowing what loving parenting is supposed to look like, right? A loving parent is absolutely concerned with the safety of the child, but hopefully that's not all they're concerned with, right? Now look, if I see my son wandering onto a train track and I hear the roar of the engine and the blaring sound of the horn, you better believe that I am sprinting, yelling, doing everything that I can to get him off that train track, doing whatever I can to save my child's life. But the protection of my child alone is not what characterizes my relationship with him. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's not the only reason I exist in his life. If that were the case, I would never take any risks I would never go anywhere or do anything that might lead to the harm of my child. I would stick him in a nuclear fallout shelter with a lifetime supply of food and water and call it good, right? If that were my only goal. But it's not. To use a cheesy turn of phrase, that would be living, or say that would be surviving. Not really living, right? The gospel is not supposed to be a pathway to survival alone, but a pathway to flourishing. Not just the avoidance of hell, but the embrace of heaven. God's children, he gives so much more to them than just the absence of death. He gives the fullness of the breath of his life, right? My main hope as a parent is not just to protect my child from harm. No, I want the fullness of life for him. I want him to experience true joy and fulfilled purpose and intimate relationships and laughter. I want my children to do more than just survive. I want them to flourish. So my relationship with my kids is not solely defined by, by protection and obligation, but rather affection. I love my children, and I want them to experience the fullness of life. I want them to love me in return, not because they're obligated to, but because they genuinely want to be with me, Right? So the gospel message is not a story of a group of survivalists who are led into a bunker to await the end of the world. The gospel message is a story about a loving father who runs to meet his children who are returning home. A caring shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. A selfless husband who is being reconciled to his bride, not just because life without God is death, but because union with God is the fullness of life, right? God is not solely concerned with punishing evil. He is determined that we would know him and be transformed by his love into the good and perfect beings he created us to be. Tabernacle, garden, unity of heaven and earth.
God and his people. It's more than just obligation and survival. It's affection and it's flourishing. Again, I said this last week, I am not the judge of the living and the dead. That job's taken. So I don't have to burden myself with that job. My job is that I am the bearer of good news, delivering this beautiful story of redemption and renewal that God wants to be with his people again, to wipe away every tear from their eyes, to say no more to death and pain. The plot of this story is to be reunited and reconciled with our Heavenly Father. So the target that we're aiming at is not simply the avoidance of hell, but rather the renewal of all things. That's the target we're aiming at. All right, so here are a couple of images to recap what we've talked about. This first image is the narrative that can limit the true power of the gospel. This is life is about where we go when we die. Sign on the dotted line, avoid the bad place. But this other picture is a narrative that I think more holistically depicts the gospel. Jesus began a good work of bringing heaven to earth, and through his death and resurrection, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, is inviting us to partner with him in the renewal of all things. Okay, so now that we've explored the nature of a more holistic approach to the gospel, in which Jesus is bringing heaven to earth and inviting us to partner in this work, what does this look like? Well, for this, I want to go to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Now, typically, when we encounter Jeremiah 29, we usually do so on a bumper sticker or a tattoo or a t-shirt or a mug that's taken out of the context of the rest of the passage because it sounds really comforting, right? We can say it together almost, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And all God's people said, right, but... but but, but let's, act, let's actually look at the words around the words because it changes it a little bit. Let's back up. We're at Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's back up to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat whatever they produce, take wives and have sons, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it is in its welfare you will find your welfare. Interesting. Skip down to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and will I fulfill you, fill to you my promise and bring you back to this place? For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come to me, I will hear you. Pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Interesting. <laughs> it's funny because the context of this passage is not about God's plan for our individual lives to be happy and comfortable. Like at all. <laughs> This letter was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Prophets were not liked. 
They were not. They were persecuted, condemned, and ignored whenever they were speaking truth. Because apparently, the truth of God is frustrating. Because the truth of God usually disrupts our own agendas, right? But the prophet is writing on behalf of God to the Israelites in a season of exile in Babylon. So their culture has been dismantled. They've been scattered about the kingdom of Babylon. Everything about their security and prosperity has been called into question. And this passage, Jeremiah writes, uh, uh, Jeremiah writes that is only after an entire generation, 70 years, will God fulfill the promise that he said he would. 70 years. So the people that are receiving this promise are not even going to be alive to see it come to pass. Plans to prosper you, but not you. You. It's a lot bigger than just you and me. Surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for you to be in a place of exile, dominated by evil powers and governments of this world who hate my name. But after your time on the earth is done, after you die, I will deliver your grandkids. Kind of puts a whole new spin on this verse, doesn't it? There's this theme of ultimate hope and reconciliation that we cling to despite not being able to see it today. It appears that God had work for his people to do even when their rights, their liberties, and their culture were ripped away from them. He asked them to work for the welfare of their oppressors. Seek the welfare of the city which I have sent you into exile. We are in a time of exile. Jesus did not promise us a life without suffering or oppression. We just heard this this morning, right? In fact, most of Jesus' followers understood that suffering was a part of the deal. We're starting James next week. James didn't write, if you have trials. He said, when. Almost all the disciples were martyred. Look at the documentation of the early church. It is a history full of blood and hardship. So compared to the days of the early church and most of the persecuted churches around the world, Christian churches in the U.S. have it pretty good. We are not promised that suffering will cease in this life, but we are promised that one day all suffering will cease. Ultimate hope. The audacity of this life following Jesus is that we are to contend for the kingdom of heaven to fall on earth right now, even when promises have yet to be fulfilled even in a time of exile, because the kingdom of heaven is not one that operates like this world. The physical kingdoms of this world can dominate all they want, but the kingdom of heaven is one that is not defined by these worldly realities, right? Our king wears a crown of thorns. And we have work to do. While we're awaiting the fulfillment of his promises, Jesus doesn't ask us to hide in the bunker and wait for the end. He invites us to boldly go, proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand, meaning it has begun and will one day be complete. And while we are here, to seek the welfare of the city in which we are sent. Because when we embody God's life-giving love, when we contend for heavenly principles here in this time, we point people to the God from whom those good things came. Do you see? There's this wonderful human, a pastor and an academic named N.T. Wright. He's an older British Anglican bishop. <laughs> we have very little in common, except that we both love Jesus. And through his work, he has actually helped the Holy Spirit change my life. He wrote a book on what we're talking about called Surprised by Hope. 
And there are some quotes from this work that I want to share with you. Those who follow Jesus and the Messiah are not simply supposed to survive. They are supposed to count, to make a difference in the world, whether through the witness of a faithful and gentle life or the chance given to some to speak and act in a way which reveals the gospel to many others. For all of that, we need to become strong to face up to the challenge. He says elsewhere, God's kingdom in the preaching of Jesus refers not to post-mortem destiny, not to our escape from this world into another one, but to God's sovereign rule coming on earth as it is in heaven. We have work to do while we are awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises. Work for the welfare of the city in which he sent us into exile. Work for the flourishing of the humans that we find around us. Because whether God's kingdom is in physical power or not, people around us are going to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, what, it's, what, it's, what it feels like, because of who we are. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this about what we're supposed to be doing while we're awaiting the new heavenly reality. He talks to us about a ministry of reconciliation. He says in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, to, entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Right here. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on, his behalf, on, on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are ambassadors of Jesus, ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, wherever we go, we are representing the love of Jesus, enacting the good of Jesus, and upholding the truth of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom goes wherever we put our feet. We begin in full diplomatic immunity. <laughs> That's probably not the right term. Whatever. <laughs> Authority. Heaven is wherever we put our feet. As the people of God empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are the living embodiment of heaven come to earth, skenaoing, tabernacling wherever we go. When people encounter us, they should smell the sweet aroma of heaven. They should feel the love of God. They should see the hope of the new creation. Our work is to contend for the prosperity of the city in which we've been sent by God, ambassadors of heaven, enacting the love of Jesus in his name. Because when God's people do good in the world, the love of God is revealed. I feel like I need to reiterate something. We did not say that hell doesn't exist, and that it doesn't matter, and that we shouldn't be concerned about people's eternal destiny. If that's what you heard, come talk to me. It's not what I said. What I said was, if we're so focused on hunkering down and surviving this horrible, horrible world and waiting until Jesus comes back, we've missed it. He has work for us to do. He's given us the audacity of hope. 
to know that the kingdom of heaven can and does materialize right now while we are awaiting our heavenly reality. God's promises are not just one day. They are one day, but they are also right now. And while we are here, we're conveying the weight of this message. That it's not just about getting people out of damnation and out of hell. If that's the only part of the story, it's not as compelling. Because what he has for us on the other side of deliverance is flourishing. Is everything, is renewal, is perfect union with God, is something so glorious that if we were to glimpse it, we would not be able to stand the weight of his spirit and his glory, his love and his majesty, if we were to witness it, we wouldn't be able to stand or bear it. And when we acknowledge it, we're going to take off our crowns that he gives to us, we're going to throw it at his feet because we're not worthy. All the human beings around us redeemed and renewed and healed to a place where if we saw them, we'd be terrified at their glory. This is the hope of all creation being restored to what it's supposed to be, where there's delight around every corner, where there is joy in everyone's eyes, where there is no more pain or suffering or grief at all. This is the center of the gospel. Not just that we're getting out of hell. Do you hear what I'm saying? So don't take what I've said out of context. Don't selectively hear what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about getting rid of deliverance in the gospel story. We're talking about growing it beyond that. Because the story that Jesus tells us, the story that the Bible tells us, is so much bigger, so much more compelling than just getting out of a bad place. When our communities see the work that we do for their welfare, they see God's people bringing heaven to earth. When the school teachers have our support, when the parks we use get cleaned, when the poor who live here are fed and clothed, when the prisoners here get visited, when the orphans here find homes, when the immigrants here find belonging, when the lonely here find community, when the sick here find healing, when those who mourn here find comfort, when there is good to be done, and we do it in the name of Jesus, and we do it in the way of Jesus, we point to a heavenly reality where we embody in part what will what day be revealed in whole. Are you with me? And he writes, says this again. Our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to a world that has discovered its brokenness, to proclaim love and trust to a world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful gift. What a beautiful purpose we have been given as people who carry the Holy Spirit with us, who carry the love of Jesus in us. As we step out these doors today, we step out as ambassadors of the God's at-hand kingdom. As those who contend for the prosperity of our city in the name of Jesus, and those who share with the world what so graciously have been given to us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
your kingdom come, your will be done in my office as it is in heaven, in our schools, in our playgrounds, in our homes, on the streets, on the buses, anywhere we put our feet. We're praying, not just with our words, but with our lives, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to take communion together. Jesus dealt with the reality of the power of hell, the embodiment of evil, the curse of sin. He became sin who knew no sin. We just read this, right? He took on the insult of God's creation. He took it on and he defeated it so that we couldn't, so that we wouldn't have to because we couldn't, right? And he did so not just because he wanted to save us from hell. Yes, he wanted to save us from hell, but because he wanted to deliver us into something, into human flourishing, into perfect union with God. This is the hope that he gave us through his cross, through his death and his resurrection. Let's take a moment and let's hold the elements in our hands and let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we look at the elements and receive what we've heard this morning. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And after he had given thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take both the elements together. Jesus, I pray that um, whatever has taken place this morning in the hearts of all of us in this room, that at the end of the day, we would hear your voice, that we would encounter your spirit and your truth, and that in and through how we worship, we would feel a little bit closer to fulfilling the purpose that you have set before us. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.